take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. As we have the blessing of beginning the next chapter in our exposition of this Gospel of Luke. You know, last week we looked at the story of Martha and Mary. And we saw just how from those two key women in the faith, we learned so much. And especially just that call to sit at the feet of Jesus. And once again, in God's providence and how God inspired Luke as the writer of this gospel, we move in chapter 11 right into this invitation and exhortation to pray. So pick up here with me in Luke chapter 11 at verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Let's join our hearts together in prayer. God, this is your holy word. Even as we've learned already in Bible study this morning, Lord, this word is true. Your word is right. Your word, Lord, reveals your nature, your character, your plan and purpose to us. And truly, Lord, as we come to this text, what an amazing promise and invitation. Truly, Lord, we pray that again you would instruct our minds and our hearts on this blessed privilege of prayer. In your name we pray. Amen. You know, if I came to any one of you, especially as the adult members of our church, and I looked at you and I said, you know, you're a very dependent person. You would probably take that as an insult, wouldn't you? Because one of the things we pride ourselves on, especially being adults, is that we've reached a place of independence, right? We've grown out from under our parents' leadership. We, you know, we've taken steps in life to have our own work, to have our own place to live, to manage our own finances, to make our own decisions. Indeed, the word dependence is a very unsavory word in our culture. Especially because, as Americans, we value independence and self-sufficiency. 
But you know, the idea that we are truly independent creatures is an illusion of our flesh. In our sinfulness, we either don't want to see or don't want to acknowledge our inherent neediness, especially our need for forgiveness and salvation. In our flesh, we believe ourselves to be masters of our own destinies, not realizing that we are on the path to destruction apart from Christ. The call of the gospel is to recognize our dependence. The call of the gospel is a call to place all of our trust and hope and security in the one true Savior who is infinitely greater than ourselves. And once we are born again into a life of repentance and faith, we begin a lifelong journey of growing and deepening in our dependence upon Jesus. Indeed, brothers and sisters, this is what we are made for. This is what Christ calls us to, to be dependent upon Him. And our dependence upon Him is most reflected and embodied in our prayer lives. You know, when we take the time to really ponder the weight of what Jesus is saying to us here in Luke 11, you realize that this is one of the most incredible promises of God that you will find anywhere in the Bible. With these words, the sovereign God of heaven and earth is inviting us to pursue Him and to take every real need and desire that we have in this life to Him. Whether it's our material needs, our relational needs, our spiritual needs, whatever needs we may have, He is God our Father. And He bids us to depend upon Him in faith. But to receive the bounty of this promise, we are called to pursue Him with vigor. That's what Jesus sets before us in this text this morning. Charles Spurgeon said this well in, in his incredible and historic book on prayer. He said, prayer pulls the rope below and the great bell rings above in the ears of God. Some scarcely stir the bell, for they pray so languidly. Others give but an occasional pluck at the rope. But he who wins with heaven is the man who grasps the rope boldly and pulls continuously with all his might. That's my heart for us this morning, brothers and sisters. That we will be a people who are so trusting and drawn to Christ in faith that we go before Him continually, persistently in prayer. Simply two points as we look at this text this morning. And the first is this. First, we see Christ's instruction on how to pray. Christ's instruction on how to pray. We pick up here with verse 1. And Jesus, He was there praying in a certain place, presumably with His disciples nearby. And when He finished, one of His disciples said to Him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught His disciples. Prayer indeed, brothers and sisters, is one of the most basic disciplines of the Christian life. How do we define prayer? It's, it's very simple. Prayer is communicating with God. That's it. Prayer is communicating with God, whether, whether silently or verbally. Prayer is both an expression of our faith and an act of worship where we praise Him, where we confess our sin to Him, where we thank Him for His grace and mercy, and where we entrust our burdens and needs to Him. 
And all of that is to flow from a heart that is fully and wholly rested in the reality of who he is as almighty God. Indeed, we pray to God because we know he is almighty. He is all-present. He is all-knowing. Incidentally, this is why it's, it's such heresy in the Catholic Church to tell people to pray to Mary or to the saints. They are not God. And it is a travesty to think that anyone would pray to anyone but to God. It is a sin. The fact of God's loving nature coupled with His infinite presence, His infinite power and infinite knowledge should lead us. We should see it as an invitation for us to entrust to Him all the needs and anxieties of our life. This is why D. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, prayer is the highest activity of the human soul. It is that chief means, the word and prayer are those chief means by which we literally commune with our Heavenly Father. Another fact we want to understand about prayer is that we also grow to resemble what we worship. We grow to resemble what we worship. So as we enjoy the intimacy of God's presence in prayer, we take on His likeness. Indeed, this is part of our spiritual maturing process. Intimate, soul-satisfying prayer is one of the greatest vehicles we are given in this life to transport us into His presence and transform us into His likeness. As we pray... God does this wonderful work as well of planting in our hearts desires and yearnings that mirror the desires of His heart. And when we have His heart and His mind and His priorities, we will see all of life through His eyes. And brothers and sisters, the beauty of seeing all things as offerings of His hand is truly astounding. Now, When we talk about prayer, we do want to remember and understand that God knows everything before we ask it. He is an all-knowing God. But this truth should never discourage us from praying. Indeed, God is sovereign and providential over every element of life. Psalm 139 verse 16 reminds us that every one of our days was written in God's book before there was even one of them. Yet, as a matter of His providence, God has created us with the ability to make willful choices with real consequences. More specifically, He has told us that He will respond to our prayers, that our prayers are significant, that our prayers change things, that they accomplish much. Indeed, James 5.16 says the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And so we are commanded to pray. We are told that prayer is this incredible privilege with which we have been blessed. And as children of God who who are one with Christ by the power of His Holy Spirit, indeed it is our very delight to talk with our Savior and understand that we can approach the throne boldly through Christ who is our perfect intercessor. Now, As we begin to unpack the version of the prayer that Jesus gives us here in Luke 11, I'm sure as I read this text this morning, many of you had the same question. The first question is, why is this version of the Lord's Prayer, more accurately called the Disciples' Prayer, why is this version of the prayer so much shorter than the one in Matthew, right? I mean, back when we were in Bible school and in Sunday school, we memorized the one from Matthew. Why is this one different? Why is this one shorter, Pastor Sean? Well, We want to remember that Jesus taught similar truths in many different locations over his three and a half years of public ministry. 
when he was there in the Sermon on the Mount, it's recorded in Matthew, that wasn't the only place that he taught those truths. And so this episode in Luke happened at a different time and in a different place than in Matthew. In answering the question of how to pray, Jesus taught the same basic lesson. He just didn't teach the same lesson word for word. Also, we want to remember that Christ is telling us how to pray, not what to pray. We know from the text of Scripture and what is recorded in the Gospels that Jesus does not want us to pray the exact same words with meaningless repetition over and over and over again. This prayer is given as a guide meant to show us how to pray biblically. A guide which believers are to flesh out with our own words of praise and adoration and petition and so on. And so let's walk through this briefly. First of all, there in verse 2, Father, hallowed be thy name. Because God created all human beings in his image, there is a sense in which God is the father of all of mankind. But this reference to God as father refers to the more intimate spiritual relationship we have with him through Jesus Christ. God is our Abba, Father, as we are co-heirs with Christ. And hallowed is a a Greek term which means to make holy or, or to consecrate or to venerate. God's name means much more than just titles or descriptions as well. God's name represents all that he is. His character, his nature, his plan and will. In the Jewish understanding, to know someone's name was to know their person and character, and most of the time to have a personal relationship with them. Therefore, to pray for God's name to be hallowed is a prayer for his person to be set apart for glory and veneration in the world and in the church and especially in our own hearts. And so prayer thus begins with ascribing God the praise and glory that he is due. Secondly, your kingdom come. Kingdom literally means a realm of rule. And when we see reference to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Christ or the kingdom of heaven, they are all referring to the same kingdom. The kingdom is where Jesus Christ rules forever as Lord for the eternal glory of his Father. The tense of the Greek for the word to come indicates a sudden and instantaneous coming. Therefore, when we pray, your kingdom come, what we're praying for is a mighty move of the Spirit in the hearts of men that saves them and ushers them into the family of God. We are praying for Christ to have more and more dominion in our hearts and in our minds as we overcome our flesh and grow in holiness ourselves. And we are praying that his return would come quickly. Verse 3 there, give us each day our daily bread. Again, in prayer, we acknowledge that God is the creator and source, and we are created beings. And he thus has made us to be dependent creatures. God made us to be dependent creatures. God does not depend on anything external to himself for any aspect of his existence. We do. In this context, the simple term for bread encompasses everything we need to live. It it encompasses food and water, clothing, shelter, health, the ability to work. It even, I think, goes a little wider to talk about having a home or even a family. We are to live dependently upon Him for these things day by day. That's why it says, give us our daily You know, in the book of Exodus, the Israelites were only given a daily supply of manna and quail. 
God wanted it firmly established in the minds and hearts of his people. He wanted it embedded in their psyche that they could not exist without him. As one commentator said, to accept the Lord's provision for the present day without concern for our needs or welfare tomorrow is a testimony of our contentment in his goodness and faithfulness. Look at verse 4. Forgive us our sins as we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. So this is the fourth point of this prayer. Just as God alone is the source of all physical life, He is also the lone source of all spiritual life. If man does not have the health and resources for physical life, he will die but once in this world. But if man does not have the forgiveness and adoption that is necessary for spiritual life, then he will experience death and torment and separation from God for every moment for all eternity. We cannot be good enough. And we are incapable of atoning for our own sins. So we need God's forgiveness for our sins. And God has provided that through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.7 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Even as believers, we are to regularly confess our sins and express our dependence upon Christ's forgiveness. And God is a forgiving God. Therefore, His children must also be characterized by a willingness to forgive. You know, there is nothing that could ever be done to us that compares to the almost infinite number of heinous sins that we commit against God in our lifetime. God gives us forgiveness that we do not deserve for hundreds of thousands of sins. He is Lord, He lives within us, and He has given us His Spirit to empower us to godliness, even though we are wretched sinners. And therefore, God reasons, we must forgive others as He has forgiven us. Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15 make this even crystal clear. For if you forgive men their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your heavenly Father will not forgive your transgressions. If you are an unforgiving person, you indeed are bearing not the fruit of Christ, but the fruit of sin and Satan in the world. Forgive others as God has forgiven you. This is to be part even of our daily prayer. The last phrase of verse 4, and lead us not into temptation. The word for temptation can mean solicitation to evil or putting to proof as in a trial or a test. And so we want to first understand that God himself does not tempt anyone to sin. It says that explicitly in James 1.13. Yet he does ordain trials or tests to strengthen our faith. Whenever we are tempted to sin, our faith is being put to the test. We are faced with a decision. Do I believe the promises of God and therefore treasure him above the desires of my own flesh? Or do I falter in my faith and choose my own way? Do I choose to believe what is ultimately a lie rather than God? And so this petition is another plea for God to provide what we ourselves do not have. 
This petition is another plea for God to put a watch over our eyes, our ears, our mouth, our feet, our hands. That in whatever we see or hear or say or in any place we go and in anything we do, He will strengthen us and protect us from sin. Brothers and sisters, when we put all that together, we see how just in these couple verses we are indeed given a beautiful roadmap of how to pray. We begin our prayers with praise for our Father, adoring Him. We seek to have His dominion grow, His kingdom expand in the world, in the hearts of men, and in our own spiritual lives. We express our physical dependence upon Him and trust Him to meet our daily needs through His regular means. And we likewise express our spiritual dependence upon Him by trusting Him alone to be the one who forgives us. And then we seek Him for strength and protection from defaming His name in sin. Brothers and sisters, this kind of prayer is a kind of prayer that acknowledges that Christ is all. That He is sufficient. That He Himself is everything we need. That He Himself has secured for us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And that our life is wholly dependent upon Him. What that means conversely is that when we are given, given to prayerlessness, we are endeavor, endeavoring to live independently of God. And let us make no mistake, there is no true life apart from God in Christ. Therefore, that leads us right into my second point this morning. Christ's invitation to persist in prayer. That's the second thing we see here. Christ's invitation to persist in prayer. Christ's heart is that His people would take His invitation to pray seriously and that we would seek Him regularly and persistently. And so He proceeds to illustrate that point for His listeners using circumstances that they would be familiar with. And so He first uses the illustration of a friend in need. When we pick up at verse 5, He gives this illustration, right? And, and I want you to kind of put yourself in the place in, in this illustration, right? Imagine that you, you have a, a neighbor who's been a good friend to you for many years. Perhaps you even had a relationship that goes back before you lived near one another. And this friend comes to you at 2.30 in the morning. I mean, you're in bed, your children are asleep, the house is quiet, all the lights are off, and you've got someone at your door. Hello? Hello? And they go from knocking to pounding. Guys, I really need something. Please answer the door. Come on. Come. Come to the door, please. You just quiet. You're thinking, maybe if we don't move, they'll go away. But no, it keeps going. They keep pounding. They keep knocking. They keep crying out. And finally, from your room, you holler, go away. I'm not getting out of bed. I don't care what you need. But that doesn't deter them. They keep knocking, pounding. Until finally you realize the only way you or any other member of your house is going to get back to sleep is if you go downstairs and help your friend, your neighbor, by giving them what they need. Do 
Jesus says here that this man did not do it for love of friendship, but simply because his friend persisted and he wanted to be left alone. And, and this is what's interesting is he uses the word impudence here. Impudence means shamelessness. It means that that person knocking on your door, they, they're, they're just shameless in their persistence. Nothing is going to deter them. Now, brothers and sisters, Jesus is not saying that we should persist in prayer because God will finally get annoyed enough with us to give us what we need. That's not the lesson he's trying to teach us here. His point is that even if the grumpiest of our neighbors will finally get up and give us what we need, how much more will our loving Father in heaven respond with wisdom and compassion when we persist in praying to Him. That's the lesson. Jesus is saying, listen, listen to my disciples, to my children. Pray. Pray often and pray persistently. Pray boldly. Pray shamelessly. Present your petitions to God until you get an answer. That's what He's saying. Verses 9 and 10 solidify this idea. Look there. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. The verbs in this text, ask, seek, and knock, are all in the present tense imperative in the original language. And what that means is those words come with the force of command. Jesus is saying... He's commanding us, ask, seek, knock. He uses these words holistically to encompass the idea of active spiritual inquiry. He is commanding his disciples to pursue God, to inquire after him fervently for everything necessary for life and godliness. He wants us to seek and pray and trust the Lord for everything we need in, in this life. And when we pray, God will provide. That's the promise. John 15, 7, Jesus says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. Could we see more of a blank check written to us by the Lord himself if we will but pray to him in accordance to his word and will? Now, we want to pause here and and those who, who teach the health and wealth gospel, they basically use texts like that one to turn God into some sort of cosmic genie. If you can just pray the right words with enough faith, then God becomes your cosmic vending machine to give you whatever you want. Is that what God is doing? No. There are caveats to this promise. First, this promise is only true for those who have faith or who believe in Jesus Christ. This promise of, in, of how he will answer in prayer is for his people, for those who are coming to him through the intercession of his own son in faith. Secondly, this promise is for those children who by the grace of Christ are striving toward the goal of godliness and obedience to the Lord's will. This is why Jesus says in John 9, 31, we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. And so don't go to God asking him for what is sin. That's blasphemous. Thirdly, our motives and priorities must be properly aligned with his word and his will. 
We should be seeking that which will glorify Him in our lives and in the world. This is 1 John 5.14, and this is the confidence that we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And fourthly, brothers and sisters, we must be prepared to receive God's answer and provision in whatever way He chooses and according to His divine timetable. That sometimes means that God will answer right away. It also sometimes means that God's answer will be wait and continue to persist in prayer. You know, I, I share with y'all before, you know, Lisa and I met when we were 16 years old. We got married when we were 24. It was, you know, the whole Jacob Rebecca eight-year plan, something like that. I don't know. All right? But from the time I was saved when I was 18 years old, I, I felt very certainly in my heart that, that she was the one I was meant to marry. Lisa wasn't so sure. At one point in our relationship, she actually told me, Sean, I will never marry you. Ouch. Right? I just had to keep trusting the Lord with that. And it was six years after that that was God's timing for Him to finally answer the prayer I was praying for a wife. Persist in prayer. And yet, brothers and sisters, wait on the Lord. Because His no, or His answer of wait, is also a mercy to you. Let me read this quote from John Piper, speaking on this passage. He says, God gives good things, and only good things. He does not give serpents to children. Therefore, the text itself points away from the conclusion that ask and you will receive means ask and you will receive the very thing you ask for when you ask for it in the way you ask for it. It doesn't say that. And it doesn't mean that. If we take the passage as a whole, it says that when we ask and seek and knock, when we pray as needy children looking away from our own resources to our trustworthy Heavenly Father, then He will hear and He will give us good things. Sometimes He will give us just what we asked, sometimes just when we ask it, sometimes just the way we desire. And at other times, He gives us something better, or at a time He knows us better, or in a way that He knows us better. And of course, this tests our faith. Because if we thought that something different would be better, then we would have asked for that in the first place. But we are not God. We are not infinitely strong or infinitely righteous or infinitely good or infinitely wise or infinitely loving. And therefore, it is a great mercy to us and to the world that we do not get all that we ask. I'm going to repeat that last line for emphasis because we need to remember this, brothers and sisters. It is a great mercy to us and to the world that we do not get all that we ask. Now pause there with me for a moment because I love you all and I know so many of you so well that I know many of you would agree precisely at this point. There were times in your life when you were praying really hard for something to happen and it didn't happen. And you can look back right now and say, thank the Lord he didn't answer that prayer. You see even now through your own experience the truth of what this teaches. Sometimes God's no is a mercy. Going on, picking up with verse 11. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? 
Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. You know, with human beings in particular, the commitment of parents to care for and provide for our children springs not only from our instinct, but also from our higher faculties of reason and emotion and relational commitment. We care for one another because we love one another. And the relationship between a parent and a child is one of the most naturally selfless relationships in the world. We do know of awful exceptions because of sin and brokenness in our world, but those are still comparatively rare. So if a son were hungry and came to his father and asked him for a fish, what father would give him a poisonous snake? The answer is no one. That would be contrary to our nature to do something like that. Likewise, if if a son were hungry and came to his father and asked for an egg, what father would be so cruel as to give a son a scorpion? The answer, once again, is no one. So given that basis of understanding, Jesus then reasons from the lesser to the greater in verse 13. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Evil is a word which means wicked or malicious, and so his word use at this point points to the depravity of all men. Every man and woman, every parent and child is sinful. And so Jesus is saying, listen, if you as depraved, sinful men know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more so will our infinite, holy, righteous, heavenly Father give that which is good to his children? And notice what God specifically gives us. He gives us His Holy Spirit. Now, what is the greatest gift that God could possibly give us? What is the greatest gift that God could possibly give us? You know, let, let's, let's travel the path of the health and wealth preacher again. Is it, is it money? Is it houses? Is it expensive cars? Maybe, you know, we we pray that God would give us that right relationship. We're lonely. We want that right person in our lives. Maybe we want the the blessing of children that we have not been gifted yet. Maybe we would pray for a perfect church. None of those things are the greatest things that God could give us. They are blessings. But the greatest gift God can give us is Himself, brothers and sisters. The Holy Spirit is God's personal presence dwelling directly in us and with us. In the Spirit, we are one with Christ. By the Spirit, we are born again. By the Spirit, we are sealed unto eternal life. By the Spirit, our mind is renewed and transformed. By the Spirit, we are continually washed and cleansed and sanctified. By the Spirit, we are delivered from our flesh and continually strengthened for obedience. And by the Spirit, we rejoice even in our tribulations because Christ is our future and our hope. God's generosity toward His children is evidenced and secured and certain. There is nothing that can compare to His provision for us. And we must see, we must understand, brothers and sisters, that the generosity of God has been secured for us at the cross of Christ. When we were in sinful need and under threat of condemnation and eternal hell, God did not remain aloof. God did not remain apart. God didn't say, do your best. Try to come to me. He came to us. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient. By becoming a servant. 
by becoming despised among men, by being sacrificed on a cross in our place by the very people that should have welcomed his arrival. Sinful men deserve only judgment from a holy God, but in Christ, we are forgiven and adopted and made co-heirs of the eternal kingdom in the provision of Christ. God's answer to his children is always yes. This is what Paul is celebrating in Romans 8, kind of that that pinnacle of the mountaintop of, of that great letter to the Roman church. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you believe that, church? Do you? then why isn't it reflected in our prayer lives? I want to go back to something I said last week in finishing up the sermon on on what we learn from those two great women of the faith, Martha and Mary. I want to go back to something I said there when we talked about sitting at the feet of Jesus. I think so many times in our Christian life, we approach prayer and and Bible reading from a works standpoint that, you know, I'm so busy, I've got so much going on in my life, and sitting down and and, and taking that time to be in the Word and study the Word and prayer, that's just another thing I have to do. We treat it like a chore, which is exactly the wrong mindset, brothers and sisters. Our time in the Word and in prayer is never meant to be a chore. It's simply locating ourselves in a place where the lavish grace of Christ can be poured out on us. It's not just another work. Christ is our delight. Even now, you have a Savior who has come and said, I have come to serve you. He says, I have come to serve you. Ask whatever you wish in my name, and I will give it to you. What are you struggling with, believer? Are you struggling with that issue of time? Take it to the Lord in prayer. Pray to Him, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm so busy, Lord. I find it so hard to make time to, to be with you. Lord, I, 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 I make other choices and I struggle with it, Father God. I put other things before you and how I use my time. Father God, please help me. And your Father in heaven will hear that and he will grant it, brothers and sisters. Maybe you're struggling with that sin, that besetting sin that gets you every time. You've been angry again, and you you know that is not righteous anger, it's sinful anger, and you're hurting the people that are closest to you. Or you've lusted again, and you've given your eyes over yet again to filth that tarnishes your heart before your Savior. Or you've given yourself over to to a level of fear and anxiety that is sinful, that shows that you are not resting resting in or or trusting in the, the sovereign goodness of God. Or you've given yourself over again to wanting the things of the world, to to having a, a greed and a love for this world that you know is shriveling your soul. Have you prayed, dear child? 
Have you heard the gracious invitation of a Savior that says, I have done everything necessary to reconcile you to myself. You are my own. Come to me. Trust me. Believe me. And I will give you the desires of your heart. And not what you desire, but that he will literally give you new desires so that your heart may be like his. Is this not a gracious Savior, brothers and sisters? Is Christ not beautiful? Is Christ not glorious that he would give of himself so freely and welcome you to come to him with any need? You can trust him. Go to him in prayer and see how the Lord causes you to have new delights. See how the Lord transforms you into a disciple that is a reflection of Him. See the wonders. Even invite, he even invites you, test the wonders and the promises of Him who has made you His very own. You will never regret it. You will receive grace upon grace. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us. Let us pray. Father God, You are so good. What a treasure You are to our souls. If we really see and understand this text for what it says, Lord, how glorious this is. We do not have to wonder. We do not have to strive. If we but persist in prayer, Lord, You will give it. You will provide. You will lead. You will give us wisdom. You will show us mercy. You will give us the love that we so dearly desire. You will meet our needs according to Your riches and glory. You will provide to us, Lord, all that we need out of the abundance of all that is Yours. Oh, Father God, forgive us for praying so languidly. Forgive us for not seeing the glory of our Savior who serves us and strengthens us as we come aside in prayer. We thank You for Your goodness to us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.